The following episode of Fofop is classified MA. It contains some coarse language, some nudity, drug references, a sex scene, time travel, terrible Batman impersonations, a Charlie Clausen pronounced Clausen shaped hole, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that the program is not suitable for persons under the age of 15, and minors must be accompanied by an adult guardian or priest. This is John Deke speaking. I'm just going to record this bit, even though we haven't started yet. This okay. is just a mic check. But as I explain uh, the podcast to you, because sometimes there are new listeners, there will be people who've tuned in. Just I like because... a mic check with a story. Right, exactly. So the idea, this podcast is called Fofop, F-O-F-O-P, Fofop, right? Now, that's because it's a spin-off of a podcast called Tofop, T-O-F-O-P. Now, that's the podcast that my friend Charlie and I have been doing for nearly eight years now, right? And we started it out together just as this bit of nonsense. It's called Tofop. It's a it's a stupid joke about Russell Crowe's band. Russell Crowe has a band called 30 Odd Foot of Grunts. <laughs> right, right, right. And they were called Tofog. And I was obsessed with his music career. And so the little joke was that we were naming our podcast after Russell Crowe's band. And the greatest moment in the history of the podcast was when on Google search, now if you put in T-O-F-O, it comes up first, our podcast, and then second, his <laughs> band, right? So anyway... I'm he sure. had to stop doing the podcast, right? It's a long story. He had to stop doing because the... Russell Crowe had threatened him. Uh, he had to stop doing the podcast because um, uh, he was on a very family-friendly Australian TV show called oh, Home and Away. Wow! And so at the start, they didn't really understand what podcasting was, and they thought, you know, we were having conversations about things that perhaps weren't family-friendly. So they asked if he could not do the podcast for a while. So then wow. I span off this podcast, Fofop, where I would have guest charlie's so everyone who sits in that seat is technically a guest charlie which and was what you, which is what i tried to explain to you in a really short way and then realized it makes even less I, sense. I like it i appreciate that you think so highly of me that you would take the time to explain that um so you're not worried about the consequences of um australian morality outrage by the things you say your your friend stepped down from the podcast right I mean, I did think... Are you worried about your career? I did think at the time that <laughs> that it was weird that my manager hadn't given me a call. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I host a very popular show on the national broadcast of the ABC, and yet apparently the nonsense that comes out of my mouth on this podcast is to be expected of me. So, okay. Yeah, I think this is well... I don't think anybody's shocked Somebody's by, got a golden ticket. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I can abuse it. I'm sure there are things I could say on this podcast that would get me into trouble, but... Uh, in a general sense, the things that I would say that would get me into trouble have already been said and people have already made their peace with whether they enjoy my things or not. And they've just moved on one way or the other, it seems. Anyway, let's start the podcast. It all sounds good. Hello and welcome to Fofop. I'm Will Anderson. And joining me, uh, guest Charlie Clawson for the very first time, but it's uh, an absolute pleasure to have him here. He's at my house. We're in Sydney. Uh, the sun has come out. The dogs are sitting on the map behind us. It is uh, Tom Rhodes. Hello, Tom. Hey, Will. I'm glad we finally got to do this. I know. We've um, been talking about doing it, but in for, LA. Yeah, when it, we've tried for a long time to yeah. coordinate podcast recording. But um, envy is the primary source of unhappiness, and I'm going to try not to be uh, envious of uh, the magnificent little beach bungalow that you have. Well, I appreciate that. It's very nice of you to say. <laughs> I work from home, so it's not. this is all I have. I don't yeah. have like an office I go to or anything that's more exciting. This is pretty much just a transition from the house to the little shed out the back of the house. That's my whole world. I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm staying in the inner city. And this is what you expect to see when you come to Australia. You know, somebody lives by the water. Right. Okay, nice one. Have you, are you enjoying the inner city of Sydney, though? Because you're out doing uh, shows in Australia. Are you just doing Sydney? Are you just at the Sydney Comedy Store? I, I'm just doing the store. Um, I'm doing an hour solo show September 2nd, and then this Sydney festival tour, um, which has been at the Comedy Store, and then I'm doing Wollongong. Okay. 
the gong. Did they're I, good, they're did, good audiences. Did in I the pronounce gong. it correctly? That was pretty good, actually, okay. to be honest. What, what the people... I actually went up on my toes when I pronounced that. Well, that's so I the thing that the people at home did not get. <laughs> Woolen gong. Yeah, it was like a. Like, I guess a back stretching exercise. That's what it looked like. You know, a yoga pose. I imagine if you'd gone to yoga and they're going, and it's time for us to do the Wollongong. And you, because it, it's like one of those words, it's a little onomatopoeic. You know, it sounds like what it is. It felt like you were elongating your body because the word Wollongong itself elongates. You know? it, it sounds like one of the poses I could do properly. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I like that. So, so you're going on this tour. You're going to the gong. Just uh, next weekend. Or, yeah. yeah. The last week I'm here. Okay. Wollongong, Newcastle. Tell me this. So you're out of here at the moment. So you're doing your hour, which I highly recommend people go and see. If I uh, am in town, I'm definitely going to come along on Saturday night. If Will likes me. I must be funny. Yeah, exactly, right? That's what the, Basically, that's what I was doing, Tom. That was my little endorsement right up the top. Get to the show details early in case they, you know, switch off before the end. I appreciate end. it. Yeah, so, uh, but the other nights you do these, you know, amazing sort of lineup shows they have there at the store. This is the way they've been running their shows around the Sydney Comedy Store, which is kind of a showcase of the best of, you know, young and emerging, you know, Sydney comedy with like, you know, uh, some experienced people, some internationals, some, you know, drop-ins, you know. It's a real good mix if you go out for a night of comedy there. Plus, you know, people doing these hour-long shows sort of around it. Tell me about like doing those lineup shows because when you, you a, a comedian of your experience, you know, when you go out on the road, um, often you're doing your set every night, like whether it be yourself. you're headlining and right. you're, yeah, you're not working with a, a, a large variety. Right. And you do, yeah, you, you're probably there, <clears throat> you know, you might have like two other people on the bill, you know, like in a general sort of sense, you know, you might have a host, you might have like a, someone who's going to like feature for you, but that's essentially your whole crew. And then suddenly you dropped in with like 12 people, who all kind of know each other probably as well, or know each other a little bit more than you know them. Like, what's that like? As I'm just interested in the, you know, the skill of being a comedian that is beyond the actual bit you get to do on stage, which right. is the changing circumstance of your job. How are you in those situations? I like it. Um, I like. I, I love comedy. It's my favorite topic and thing activity in the world, and. I like seeing different styles of comedy. There, um, there was some great local acts um, that were on the show. Everybody's doing 15 minutes, and the store has been packed. The audio, I, uh, I, I think I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass, but uh, playing in Sydney is one of my favorite audiences. Sydney, and, com Sydney Comedy Store is a great comedy room. I think one of the best comedy yeah. clubs in the world. And that's why I... I Sometimes those rooms out. just have like a magic that you can't explain. Because if you were going to design it, it's not perfectly designed. Like, you know, there's still bits of it that you would ideally change. But for whatever reason, there's something about that room, particularly when it's full. That yeah, it's the, the oval stage, the height of it, the red curtain. And then in the, the back part, it's tiered seating. So like everywhere is a great... See, and you're right. It's um, it's not like the perfectly designed room, but I love it. And then also, what you're saying about working with different comedians, I'm in Los Angeles now. I'm on the road half the time, and then half the time I'm in LA doing sets at the Comedy Store and the Improv. And it's like that. Everybody's there's a ton of comedians. Everybody's doing 15 minute sets. And then I also go to New York City twice a year to do sets at the Comedy Cellar and the Underground, and that's everybody doing 15-minute sets. And as you know, in London, it's the same. Those kind of... Um, I, I mean, it's... You know, there, there, was, there was one act that was a complete flop over the weekend. There's a couple of younger comedians, uh, great character people. You could see they're just starting to write their comedic voices... And they had really strong jokes as it is. I mean, so like for me, man, and it was a, a by the way, uh, I think it's undervalued as long as the flop doesn't ruin the night. Exactly. How it's <clears throat> undervalued how good a flop can be for the rest of the night. Yeah. Because essentially what it is, <laughs> it's essentially somebody falling off the high wire before you go on to do your high wire. Yeah. Like there's a sense of going, oh yeah, this is dangerous. <laughs> I remember this isn't that easy to do. Like, yeah. I feel like it should almost be necessary for every night. If you're programming a night perfectly, you'd be like, look, to be honest, it's unfair to them and they'll appreciate the stage time. But we've put them in as our, we'll put them in the flop spot, <laughs> the perfect flop spot, just to remind everybody that this is as hard as uh, some of these guys are making it look too easy. I like it. And then also there's a, um, you know, there's, there's an art to doing a short set. 
like when you do a television set. You're doing like seven to ten minutes, and you know they're going to chop it down to five, or sometimes you only get five, and uh, you got to hit it perfectly like an Olympic dive. So I'm interested in that because you say you you are, are interested in comedy and you love comedy. So it might be something that you have like a, a nice insight into, which is this idea of. <clears throat> um, in five minutes, what are you trying to achieve? Like if someone says to you, hey, we want you to come on Conan or whatever, or, you know, do this gala spot or whatever it is, but it has to be five minutes. What's your approach to doing five minutes as opposed to doing like, you know, a headline set? Well, I mean, of course, you're just going to try and hit them with as many jokes as you can. I mean, that's a, um, you know, or like the greatest story. Five minutes is nothing. But like when you're talking about the 15 minute set, like when you do, you know, Montreal, uh, the gala or these other festivals. And it's always at the gala, you do like 15 minutes. And that is like, I think a perfect amount of time to, to showcase your best jokes, cut all the fat off the pork chop, you know, hit them with your best story, whatever. Like you can really like, you know, build a nice crescendo in a 15 minute set. I would absolutely agree with you, which is that opportunity in 15 minutes is enough to introduce yourself fully to a crowd. If you do it properly, like tell them everything that they need to know about you to go away and have like a fully formed opinion of you in five minutes, you can give them an aspect of your personality or who you are or your thoughts, but you can't give them 15. You probably should be able to give them enough of an indication about what the rest of the 45 minutes would be if they came and saw you for an hour, you know? So what is it in that 15 minutes that you would like an audience to take away from you? Like if they're seeing you for the first time, what are you trying to get Uh, across in 15 minutes so that they walk away and go, well, this is what I think of Tom Rhodes. Sorry, uh, we don't always talk about comedy. Well, I mean, on this I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm just... trying to, to, to do my not only the funniest jokes, the smartest jokes, right? Okay, and then, um, and then also a personal flavor of, like, like Bill Hicks used to say about Jerry Seinfeld. Well, he's funny, but you don't learn anything about him, right? It's just all these jokes, and um, <laughs> you know, I don't, uh, I don't do a big personal bloodletting on stage. I don't like that either. You uh-huh. know, like the. The Edinburgh show where someone cries every night exactly at 28 minutes and 30 seconds. Right. You know, and you well, got, it's a, it's a hard you recreate business that. model. You know, it's I mean, hard to have one of those things happen to you every year. You might have one in you, but it's <laughs> yeah. like it's like going, yeah, coming home at Christmas and trying to get dad drunk so he'll touch you funny yeah. so you can cry at the 28 minute I need it for the Edinburgh show. I need it for dad. <laughs> Do one thing for my comedy career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I did Edinburgh a couple of years ago, and I, I called my uncle immediately and yeah. said, uh, had you fucked me, I right. would have had a better shot at the at best least, show title. At least got a, on the list. I at least would have got on a list. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing these days, though, as well, with that style <clears> of <throat> you know comedy I've noticed is, like, in the past... There was at least an aspect of, and by the way, I've seen people write powerful shows around you know those sort of themes. It only becomes a cliche because there are now so many people doing comedy that everybody feels like they have have to have one of those sort of shows. And then sometimes people don't have a story that really matches it with the other stories. Yeah. It's like, oh, my dog died, and I really like my dog. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, well, cool, I man. I don't like, like I don't like sloppy comedy. Right. If um, I like well written comedy, and like if you're doing a 15 minute set like you should show the the best that you have to offer um even on like edinburgh hour shows or or any kind of um show i like to i like to to be dazzled by a little wit i like to be um uh as impressed with um someone's intelligence of what they can you know articulate in a humorous way so who was it that inspired you to be a comedian like that like who was it that you were fascinated by that was like oh i I, you know these are the things that thrill me when i watch them or when i want to be a comedian these are the things i would like to be able to do well where i'm starting from um my father is the reason i'm a comedian my dad loved stand-up comedy and uh richard pryor was his favorite really so my dad had Tons of prior vinyl records. And then he also had um, Bob Newhart. He was a big fan of Bob Newhart. Um, and I remember driving around with my dad as a kid listening to, to prior um, like cassette tapes. And so that's where I'm starting from. And Pryor's my all-time favorite. And then uh, when I was real young, 
starting out in Florida, I worked with Bill Hicks and, and then I moved to San Francisco on my spiritual comedy quest. And I've always thought that, uh, San Francisco is the Jerusalem of stand-up comedy. I think it started Mark Twain invented the, uh, stand-up comedy art form. He gave lectures the first one was like 1856, something like that in San Francisco. And uh, it, 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 they were humorous. He worked on these lectures like a comedian. He dropped lines that weren't funny. The guy, um, you know, I, I think invented stand-up comedey there. So I like that. I like the idea that maybe he was doing some open mics on the way to those gigs as well <laughs> before he got him in front of the in big the crowds. saloon. Yeah, you go. You know. Uh, Samuel Clements is doing a gig wink later on tonight. <laughs> Always yeah. under his usual working name, just while he's trying it out. Okay, if we could get the piano player yeah. to stop playing some <laughs> ragtime for a second, and if we could get those those drunk prostitutes at the pool table to simmer down just a little bit, we're going to have uh, some comedic entertainment by Samuel Clements. <laughs> okay. We'll wait till the guy with the peg leg uh, makes his way across the wooden floor before we start. <laughs> so, so, so I mean, so I, I started out with high um, um, standards, and and then I've through the years, you know, the the comedy world is very small. So, like doing festivals, and you you do it for any number of years. I mean, everybody pretty much knows each other you know i'm friends with dave Chappelle and and louis ck and bill burr and doug stanhope and all these you know you know uh brilliant comedians um that i see and get to hang out with and yeah, so it it's like so not only you know i always have that that's really uh like in america now is the golden age of comedy the um um it, it, there's a, such a resurgence and there's just the best of the best of american comedians I'm working with in, in New York and LA and, um, and, and doing these like 15 minute sets and seeing how they do it. Um, can I, can I regale you with a, with a, with a, with a story about, um, uh, Amy Schumer? I was in New York, uh, in June. I went there for a week Yeah. and, oh, and it was great. My, some friends of ours own a place, um, uh, right on Bowery. So it's like really right next to little italy and then there's greenwich village so it was a short walk you know we'd have my wife and i would eat like these great restaurants that she yelped um and then we'd stroll over to the club and uh the thing at those at those at those shows like if somebody famous comes in and they want to go on they go on immediately right and you get bumped so twice i got bumped for amy schumer uh she told this story about um, about her dad, she closed her set with saying, "You know, um, my dad has MS. Her, she, her dad has some one of the uh, terrible muscle disease, and he's wheelchair bound. I, I uh -huh. think it's MS." And he said that uh, he's a real mean person. He's kind of an asshole. But she's got a lot of money now, and she wants to do something nice for her dad because she loves him. So she has been paying someone to jack off her father. <laughs> And she's like, do you guys think that's wrong? And then like half the audience is like, no, 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 not at all. You know, and they, they, they you know, it's New York. They, they adore Amy Schumer. So like I had to go on after her and uh, I, I, it was, I had, I, I improvised this great opening. I would walk out all sheepish and I'd, I'd say, uh, hi everybody. Um, forgive me. I'm a little nervous. Um, this isn't my real job. Uh, my my real job is I, I jack off Amy Schumer's father. Right, brilliant. I'm not used to working under these bright lights. <laughs> Usually I work the candlelight with a little soft Sinatra in the background. So it was it was great. Um, so tell me this. You talked about like, you know, being in San Francisco and the sort of spiritual connection between sort of like, you know, comedy and what... I mean, it's an interesting thing, comedy, to do as a job. I think about this a lot. And one of the things that um, comes with being a comedian is the if you allow yourself, you can constantly be in your own head. Like you've signed up to a job 
where you have given yourself the capacity to every day wake up and examine your life and examine the circumstance around you and examine what you believe about the world and like soak up what other people believe about the world and try to filter that into like, you know, a way of connecting with a whole bunch of complete strangers in a room. It can be a great thing to sign your life to. Like it, it, you, it can be about what comedy can teach you about life and as a coping mechanism and all those sort of things. But it can also be that sort of thing of going, you know, the comedic angle on this is when something terrible is happening, I sometimes wonder if I'm connecting with it on, in the way that I should be because I'm actually connecting with it in the way of going, this will make great material. You know, that you process your entire life through the prism of what it means to be a stand-up comedian. So I guess the question I'm asking you is, how connected are those two things to you? Like the journey of what comedy can teach you about who it is to be human, or is that something that is separate, you know, to the work? Do you separate those two? How does that work? Do you understand the question I'm asking you? Well, it's a two-tiered question, so I'll give you a two-tiered answer. Good. I think the thing about staying in your head is a good thing. It can be taxing, yes, uh -huh. of course. And... Um, my wife is a great coach about pushing me to, you know, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? And like to, to, um, to write essays, we both feel that like writing little mini essays is the, is the path to writing great material. Okay. And the, 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 you know, we're, my uncle used to deliver packages for Federal Express, and he would always say to me, you know, Tom, just remember, when I show up at an office building to deliver a package, no one applauds. You know, like in comedy, we, we, get, a, we, we get applaud to, right. before we start. Before you start. We, we walk up, we go to work to, before you to start, a round of applause. Before you start your 40-minute so, I mean, the, the, job. The, the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like I, I, now that I'm older, I wake up earlier, but um, I used to, I've slept till noon for like 30 years of my life. But my favorite one on that one is if I'm like, if I come home after a terrible show. And by the way, most terrible shows are shows that I believe are terrible by my standards yeah. rather than the audience having walked away thinking were terrible. But I come home in one of those moods like you know it's an art didn't work because this you know kicking yeah blah 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 mm -hmm. and amy's big one is always how long did it go for and i was like 45 minutes she's like yeah yeah and then it was over so yeah you know yeah like even your worst day at work <laughs> is over within the hour normally <laughs> that's the good thing about comedy as a job well the good you know and so the good thing about that perpetual voice in your head where you're you're looking for things is you know i, I always think especially as a stand-up comedian you have to be your own best corner man. Okay. Like Muhammad Ali had Bundini Brown in his corner. He was the guy who came up with the float like a butterfly, sting like a bee poem. And so he was the guy in Ali's corner. Don't, don't, don't give up champ. Keep sticking, you know, stay off the ropes, get in the inside. You bob your head and stick and throw and punch and uppercut. And, you know, you have to do that yourself as a comedian. You're on stage and it's like, okay, this you know, oh, that new bit really shit the bed and I got to, you know, stay off the ropes, you know, um, you, 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 and, and, and then in life as a comedian, you got to keep coaching yourself back from the brink. It's the never ending thing about comedy. And what I always say about um, show business in general is it's never possible to feel good about yourself for longer than three minutes <laughs> at a time. So like you like you can have like the greatest achievement and then like three minutes later you get an email from your manager or a club canceled or something that you just feel like, oh, um, that's, that's right, I'm a piece of shit yeah. again. Uh, it, so no matter how great you feel about yourself, there's always something that's going to come and knock it off three minutes later or less. So, so I think there's that good aspect for me about, you know, where you're, and I, I, I like you not being lazy and trying to like, now I'm trying to come up with my, my new hour. I just put out a new album called all hail laughter and available at all <clears throat> places that you buy albums or do you have to go to your website uh, how, iTunes, how do or my website, tomroads.net. Um, but it's on, um, you can buy it there or Amazon and, um, I mean, and I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, to film a special, my next, I did a Netflix special a few years ago, um, that it, it came, it ran for three years. It just came down, but so it's time for me to do like another special 
Okay, so tell me then, <clears throat> if you're about to like embark on that idea of going, at the end of this, this is what I want. I want this new show that's going to be this special and yeah, I put this together. How does that process work for you? Where do you start? you know, putting something like that together? Do you think about what it's going to be as a whole piece before you start or do you just start <clears> chipping away on ideas or little things that you have? How does that process start? Uh, I, well, for the next special, I have an idea about doing something internationally. So I'm, I'm going to pitch that to Netflix and Comedy Central when I go back to Los Angeles. So... Okay, yeah. so you got like a thing. You've got, got an idea. idea. Yeah, I got an idea. Like a thing that yeah. would, it would be... Okay. <clears throat> I got an idea. But then... Uh, this this new album I just put out, it's a double album I recorded in Minneapolis last year. It was right after the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting had happened. Yeah. And I'm from Orlando, so I got a nice uh, gun hunk on there. And then also, it was right after Prince died. And right. um, I, 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 I Prince was from Minneapolis. I recorded it in Minneapolis. I... I, Where did you I, record it? Was it a lifelong Prince did you record fan. at Acme or somewhere at else? At Acme, yeah. At Acme, that's and a beautiful company. I, uh, I, in 1995, Prince's keyboard player was a fan of mine, uh-huh. invited me to Paisley Park for a private party where Prince jammed from like 3 in the morning until 6 a.m. There were only 50 people there. It was like incredible. So anyway, I talked about uh, about this and on that. So th- that's, also, that's so that great. show was before <laughs> Trump. That, uh, the, the, I was I uh, had recorded stuff about um, you know the election on that one, and then the next one I did in San Francisco uh, in February, and it was right after Trump was elected. Uh-huh. So like, there's you know, and then there's personal. Okay, so stories. tell me this. Um, uh, I'm fascinated by Prince. I, for whatever reason, where I grew up. Uh, I got the wrong idea about what Prince was when I was a kid. Like in our area, Prince was kind of, it was on the commercial pop stations and it got mixed in with, if you were into commercial pop music, like that Prince was kind of like that. And so I, for whatever reason in my head, just got into my head that Prince wasn't the sort of music that I was into. I was in LA when he did, uh, he did 20 shows in 20 nights at the forum. And so I'm living in LA and I go and see Paul F. Tompkins. Do you know Paul F. Tompkins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see him at Largo doing a show one night. And he talks about in his show that he's just gone to see Prince. And from his description, from this like 10-minute comedy routine that he did that night, I was like, whatever the fuck it costs me, I'm going to get a ticket to go and see Smart. Prince, right? So I, I go and pay whatever it is that I paid for this ticket. One ticket by myself. I just went, I'm just going to go. I don't need to go with someone else. Like, because I'm kind of, in some ways, I'm an explorer. I've never really... I mean, of course, as it turns out, one of the revelations of the night was, I know every song Prince has ever released. Because even if you're not a Prince fan, Prince songs have been everywhere enough that there wasn't anything the whole night where I was like, what's this song? But secondly, I'm so glad I went by myself because it was spiritual. It's like one of the greatest concerts I've ever been to, easily top five concerts I've ever been to in my entire fucking life. I've never been more entertained by one person. Like the fact Beautiful. that he had 20,000 people just in the palm of his hand in the round. So he just have a piano on one side. So he like just go over there sometimes do the piano once. At one stage, this is my, this is when I was like, went from going, yeah, okay, this will be interesting too. Oh my God, this guy's the greatest entertainer. Well, two, okay. These were the two moments that just got me where I just went, oh, I get this now. So at the start, he's playing on the big Jumbotron screens, um, James Brown. Like, it turns out that a whole bunch of James Brown's musicians play in Prince's band as well. But I didn't know that at the time. No one was explaining to me. So um, he's playing James Brown, like, in concert, up on the screen. And I'm just like, the balls on this motherfucker. <laughs> like, that's like me playing a Bill Hicks, like, live right. album before I come out on stage. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... But then there's this interview in the James Brown thing where they're interviewing James Brown and James Brown on the big screen in close up just says, people always say, why don't you play the best of James Brown? And James Brown just looks down the camera and goes, because the best of James Brown is yet to come. And the lights go out and Prince just comes out from the middle of the stage. Wow. And I went, oh my God. All right. Okay. This is going to be a show. <laughs> Right, and then at one stage he's over on the piano and he's like playing like the riff from Cream, and then he'll play the riff from something else, and then in between he'll just go mm, too many hits, and then just like move on. It was amazing. So you went to Paisley Park, is my question. Uh, yeah, and um, I saw Prince four times. Right, 
Uh, I was in the 10th grade when Purple Rain came out. I saw Prince in 1984 on the Purple Rain tour. And then Purple Rain wow. was like such a ubiquitous part of my uh, puberty and, you know, losing my virginity. That's why, you know, I, I figured that like, it's why I like in excess so much. I was like, I, all my earliest sexual experiences were like to Prince and in excess and, and things like just Prince. Uh, I've been a fan since, since Purple Rain. I saw him four times and um, the, 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 you know, like the, his keyboard player, Tommy, who had invited me to Paisley Park, I got there early on Saturday night. Right. So I brought one of the other comedians that was working with me. The guy sure. still thanks me profusely to this day. The other comedian that was on the show lived in Minneapolis and thought, oh, I'll do this anytime. You know, and whenever I see that, I saw that guy place. after Prince died and he's like, oh man, I really should have gone with you that night, man. So... This was his keyboard player right. for Prince, and he was a fan of mine. Yeah. I, I I had done a bunch of stuff on Comedy Central, and the guy was a huge Comedy Central fan. And um, wow, and it was one of those kind of tours. So he, he'd get there early, which you know was like one in the morning, right? Perfectly after my show and end, yeah. ended like at midnight, and buzz out there to where he lived, and he gives me this private tour there in the basement that was like, it was like a purple BMW and he had, there was the motorcycle from purple rain, which was like kind of medium size. It looked bigger on film, you know, it was like a special made motorcycle, but like, Oh my God, that's from the thing, you know? Um, and I saw that. I, li I like to think the whole house would have been like that. <laughs> that yeah, would have been even in better. Miniature, you go, every everything in miniature. Everything. Yeah. Well, when it, so <laughs> before that show started, he walked right in front of me, and he, you know, he yeah. was, he was like five right. three. He was tiny. I mean, even in his heels on stage, yeah, you could tell he was, he was tiny. tiny. But he filled a twenty thousand seat theater yeah. when I saw him. Um, so uh, we there was a sh we I rode on the elevator that he died on. Wow! And then upstairs there was a sewing shop with like six sewing machines and this absolute beautiful rolls of fabrics right. and like uh like chanel looking designs on sketch paper pinned on on walls and cork boards and so he actively had a designer there or right. he was designing things himself all of his clothes were made so like when i first started taking trips to to hong kong i started having like really pimp suits made and i got it that idea from from prince and um let me just tell you um because i know you'd be impressed that i opened for james brown <laughs> well of course i'd be impressed by that so tell me the circumstances of this where was it how did it happen because this <clears throat> a thing that's not very it, it happens here occasionally in australia having a comedian open for a musical act but like a lot of the time it's when it's very common in the states, right. and then you, they don't—they don't have to set up their. A band doesn't have to. You don't have to move another band's equipment. Right. And all you got to do is, you know, turn on the microphone. You don't have to pay a whole. And you other don't band. have to pay them either. You don't right? have to like yeah. travel with a whole other band. <laughs> you don't have to feed a whole other band backstage. Yeah. You don't have to like get drinks for a whole other band. There's yeah. a lot of advantages. I can see it. Yeah. Uh, so you're opening for James Brown where? 1996 at the Canocti Harbor Resort, which is two hours north of San Francisco uh -huh. on Clear Lake. Yeah, uh, absolutely beautiful, and um. I got. I had to do twenty minutes in front of him. I've been. A, I'm from the South. I, I I love James Brown. Grew up with. I I did. I started out on the Southern circuits, and I remember I did a shitty one nighter in Augusta, Georgia, when James Brown was in prison, and I rode my car out to the to the edge of the prison, and I sat on the hood. I had my James Brown greatest hits cassette tape. Uh, in the you know turned up in the car I'm sitting on the hood smoking cigarettes just brooding they've got this genius locked up over there like an animal you know just brooding and getting angry at government and um, the you know racist justice system in America um, and, 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 and just I, I, I know facts about James Brown he did all of his earliest recordings at in Cincinnati, Ohio, I read his autobiography. This man means so much to me. So uh, I didn't want to meet him. 
Right. Because, <coughs> well, I, because if you know things about James Brown, you might know that I have enough sense to go, well, maybe this like meeting won't go in the way that will enhance my love of James exactly. Brown. Exactly. Right? And, I, and I, I wanted to keep the, I mean, he was in his 60s at the time. His show was still phenomenal. He still did splits and stuff. And uh, the guy is electrifying. Even as a senior citizen, he was a, a, a brilliant performer. Is it um, true? But, but, you, I, but okay. I was worried. I didn't want to ruin my, my yeah. hero image. I didn't want to like go backstage no, and like, if what if he's in his underwear? He's got his wig on a hanger. Who knows what the scenario? My hero. I, I, he's just looking. I accidentally at- see through his pee hole yeah. in his boxer shorts. Something weird. Anyway, now- just staring into a mirror, just saying over and over. The truth is, I don't feel good. I don't. I don't feel good. I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of melancholy today, <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling, to be quite honest, right, to be honest to be frank yeah but nobody feel, wants to hear that from yeah. me do they <laughs> I'm feeling so-so <laughs> I feel good I every feel day so-so how can yeah. you feel good every song day song wouldn't have had schedule. as much power no. as if it would have been I'm feeling so-ho so-so <laughs> you know the truth was when I said I couldn't go on I could go on I was just faking it tonight <laughs> I, faking I could it. go on <laughs> Uh, so what happens in that situation on the night? Because this is the thing that I always think as the comedian in me, this is what I think is like, do these James Brown fans listen to you? Are they, because uh, I mean, I guess they're more familiar with the idea that a comedian might open for an act like this. So yeah. It's not- and then also is Northern California where people are really chilled okay, and cool. really cool. Right. So and they're really just happy that something's on. about everything. Right. It's hard to anger these people. Okay. You know, right. unless you like that. Uh, some right wing hate group was going to do a march in San Francisco and a few days ago, and they canceled it because the people in San Francisco said they were going to throw dog turds at them. <laughs> so, like we saw in Charlottesville, the clashes between the anti-fascists and the you know the the Nazi fascist people, and that didn't settle anything. So, so you can't confront violence with violence. You have to confront hate with. Little tiny dog turds. Dog turds. Well, also, you know, at least you know where all the dog turds are. You know, you're not going to randomly step in a dog turd. It's probably going to encourage people to pick up their dog turds in the meantime. So they have some ammunition. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's probably cleaning up the city a little as well, I would think. Yeah, there could be eco little uh, turd carrier ammunition bags i did read there was some uh some place which i can't remember online that they they had a nazi <laughs> march through their town and their way of combating that was uh they they them and clapped and... well they signed them up to a oh that's right they yeah. did like a walkathon yeah and they yeah. raised all this money and <laughs> yeah. then sent it to like anti-nazi causes so that was pretty good so every beat they marched essentially they were raising money for causes that did not support them which was fun. i saw that i think that was actually in germany yeah, yeah. Well, see, they village. have to be a bit more creative about it now, don't they? <laughs> they have to lean in a little harder. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I would think. I guess if you're in Germany now, you're like, I guess this is like heat off us a bit now, right? Well, yeah. The, uh, you know, who would have thought that now Germany is like one of the most progressive countries in Europe and a very compassionate leader in Angela Merkel, and the United States is the leading. Uh, hostility. Um. I'm interested in your perspective because you've traveled a lot. Like you're a world traveler in your comedy, but you've also lived in a whole bunch of different places. Do you have any thoughts about like what system, like what's the things that you've seen in one place that you can't believe they don't have in other places? Do you know what I mean? Do you have those things where you go, you go to one place and then you go, why doesn't everybody else have this thing? Well, yeah, I lived in Amsterdam for five right. years and I, the, the, I adore the Dutch. I mean, it's, you know, you, you, you can't call them a socialist country because in reality they are a socialist democracy with a functioning monarch, monarchy. Right. So the, the 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 king actually has say and input on the government. Right. And uh, it, it, it's socialist, but it's also a democracy. The you know the fact that they have um, you know health care and like people can get uh, quality educations for you know not having to pay exorbitant money for it. My wife is from Rotterdam, not from a wealthy family. And she attended Leiden University, which is like the Harvard of the Netherlands. 
And she didn't have a crippling student debt for the rest of her life. You know, like in America, I remember my sister's um, student debt she had. I mean, there's so many people in the States, you know, you start out in the hole. Right. And the some... best and the brightest. Yeah. Like if the idea of the society, if the idea of the reason to have university is, is it we vaguely agree, which I'm not sure that we do vaguely agree on this anymore. But let's just say that we used to vaguely agree that it was in everybody's benefit that we were all smarter. Right. I don't think you could actually get an agreement on that. But in the old days, that used to be the idea. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Well, that's, I thought that's what we were aiming for, too. <clears throat> yeah, less poverty, better way of right. life, uh, extended uh, life expectancy years. Yeah. And, and now it's like, uh, I mean, I, I, and, and I'll tell you, Australia still remains very charming to me. But like the, um, um, I lost the point. No, tell me. Yeah, I bet you're about to say that something's changed in Australia from when you first came here to coming here now. Do you think so? Oh, no, no, no. That's what I was going to say is that in America, smart is the new stupid. Right. I mean, I don't think it's new. I think it's been this, trending this way for a while. But it appears to be the dumber you are, the better you serve capitalism. And you don't question things. You lose your your factory job, your tech job or whatever. Now it's like, I don't know what the fuck has happened in America. Well, it's what that I was, was the point I was going to make. No, well, I think that's right. Like, I mean, I look at the news media. I studied journalism at university. And, like, I just look at that industry from what it was to what it is now. Like, I click on the front page of these news websites some days, and I just don't see any news or anything. Like, I mean, the news.com.au, which is the big, you know, Rupert Murdoch, what mainstream Australia would probably click on to find out what the news is. Like, most of it's Game of Thrones fucking recaps. Yeah, well. You know, like, yeah. you won't believe this outrageous Game of Thrones theory. And that's like the number two story. And the number one one is about some dwarf that fell down a hole, but their breast implants stopped them from falling the whole way down or something. <laughs> that's the number one click story. Then the Game of Thrones recaps are two through nine. And then you might actually get to some politics or news. It's... It's like we de we decided as a world when it came to news that every restaurant in the world should be McDonald's. Like, there's no problem with having that trash stuff, but did we have a discussion about it all being trash? But the idea is that, that more of us consume the trash than consume the good stuff. So yeah. I guess that's the argument that would be made back in the other direction. Yeah. That this is what we want. Well, I, I think Australia, for me, remains charming because, like, you guys are about to vote on marriage equality. Oh, and... <clears throat> to me, it's just like it, to me. Yeah. It's like I, I feel nostalgic being here because I remember when we were in that place in America, and like really, Australia. It's what you, who's left? You, Afghanistan. I who, mean, who doesn't have? <laughs> what civilized country doesn't have gay marriage? So it's so funny to like see this. Like, oh, that's wow, that's still an issue here. Yeah, and that people are are making the same arguments that they made in the states. Like, well, uh, that's the what's next? People going to marry their dogs? But people going to marry their toasters? Like, I'm. This is the exact same shit people said in America, and it's so funny. No. No one's going to marry their fucking dog or their toaster. We're talking about human beings. Well, first, and every okay. human being experiences love and should uh, <laughs> should have basic human rights to you know. So it's it's just it's 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 yes. it, it's charming. Firstly, nobody's marrying their dog, right? Okay. <clears throat> Firstly, we all know that nobody's marrying their dog. Secondly, like. That's not what consent is anyway. A dog can't consent to being married. So you're talking about a whole completely different thing. It's like, you don't even, it's a stupid argument. But even if it wasn't a stupid argument, this is the thing that amazes me about all the arguments, whether it's like they'll do this or any of the slippery slope arguments that they trot out is, it's like they're ignoring the rest of the world, like pretending the rest of the world doesn't exist. You know, you go, no, no. You can prove no one's going to marry a dog because they've, right, had, it, they've right. had it in place for 15 years. <laughs> That's a great and point. No one yeah, right. a dog. Sweden has like, had it since 1963. Not, not, one. not one single no, dog. No one wedding. ever turned up to like, City Hall with their fucking one. dog going, Just hey, right? I can do this, huh? But that's the thing. With all those arguments, they'd be fine <laughs> arguments if the thing hadn't been in place everywhere else without any of those things becoming problematic. That's funny. It just, <clears> it's such a. Like, in some way, you think Australia will be worse than the, yeah, Alabama was when, you know, it got passed there? You know, I mean, it's crazy. It's But the, I well, will my, say my, this, yeah. that in Australia, this is a case of the politicians 
been desperately out of touch with the majority of the Australian population. The Australian, the majority of the Australian population has, in pretty much every opinion poll for the last decade, supported same-sex or marriage equality. Um, it's been very political, and the reason that it hasn't got through has mostly been about politics. But I hope that it's soon gonna. I mean, you know, the worst thing about it is, even just as an Australian touring comedian internationally, I can't write. Like, you're like, oh, yeah, I'd like to write something about this. You know, it's a topical <laughs> thing. Everybody's like, hey, it's we like, decided that 10 right. years ago. I can't tour this ago. material. Yeah. I can't be getting on stage in America going, anyway, so what if people would marry a dog? They're like, yeah, yeah, we we, 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 did, com- <laughs> we did comedy about this 10 years ago when this was an actual issue. Yeah. Well, <laughs> your bit has been made hacky by your country. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. My mom uh, is a hardcore Christian Republican, and I remember talking to her about my mom and dad had been divorced for like 30 years and my mom's little dog pepper is her life she absolutely loves this little dog right. pepper so i'm i was talking to my mom i said mom you know some conservative people are saying what's next if people if we allow gay marriage are people going to marry their dogs and my mom goes i'd marry my dog <laughs> I mean, some people would marry their dogs. It is the fl- it is the flaw in the argument because we all know she if really, it was really allowed. That well, that's the thing. The problem is we argue against that slippery slope argument, but we also have to acknowledge if it were legal for people to marry their dogs, there would be some people who would marry their dogs. Yeah. Hey, and I'm pretty I'm pretty fond of my toaster. Yeah, I mean, well, that one's no harm, no foul. I'm that's fine. Like I'm you can marry your toaster. I don't it's care. A, it's a force slicer i have no problem with those people who have that sexual kink that they're like you know people get married to a wall or like a whatever if your brain is wired in a way that your sexual thing is that you feel like you're in love with a wall then better it be that than like you know someone who can't consent or whatever it's a wall it doesn't really matter if you want to fucking bury your toaster marry your toaster well as long as i have no problem with that as long as people are thinking about love instead of um you know hate and violence and terrorism right that's a good thing yeah if you're like at home fucking your toaster rather than like you know getting on online forums about how much you hate women then fine fuck your toaster yeah i feel like that's fine don't plug it in would be my advice or maybe that's part of the thrill anyway whatever I don't know. Well, but also it's really nice just to be in Australia and a country that's not on the verge of civil war. Well, here's the thing. So I, you know, I live in America half of my time, but this year I have not been back as much as I ordinarily would be. And part are you, of the, are you angry with us? Well, no, you know what it is. I feel like you guys are having a, a debate about the very essence of what it means to be America, and that's just not my debate to be had right like i want to live in america but it's like my america is like a couple who always fight when we go out now and they they you guys need to sort your shit out yeah and then i'll be happy to hang out with you guys again but it's not going to be helped by me chipping in my two cents worth about what's gone wrong this is something you guys have to work out this is america's battle about the soul of what it means to be an american right yeah and i think there are two very distinct groups in that country right now about, you know, that are very, very divided about what it means to be an American. And as someone who's not an American, who just wants to live in America amongst some Americans, that is not my battle to have. So I think, yeah, I think I have kind of, because that's also the area where I normally do my best comedy is talking about what's going on in sort of, you know, my world and the broader world, right? So sometimes you're like, well, I can talk about what I think about Trump or America or what's going on, but this is this is your fight. This is for you guys to talk about. You guys have got to sort this out. I can't, I can't help it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Well, you seem you seem to have a cozy uh, setup here. It's funny. You want to live in America. I want to live in Sydney. Well, I mean, we could do a timeshare. Maybe <laughs> yeah, that, there maybe, you go. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's all right. Oh, man, you'd love my place for six, <laughs> six months out of the year. That'd be perfect. I love it. <laughs> Actually, that's like something that comedians probably haven't looked into as much as they could. If you could genuinely split your schedules a little bit. That's genius. You I don't know what why I mean? hasn't anybody thought of yeah, that? Yeah, it's like all you, you don't really need two solid careers yourself. What you need is like... <laughs> you need two One guy with a medium <laughs> career <laughs> and the other guy with a decently located apartment. Yeah, apartment. Yeah, that's all you need to bring to the table. It's like, One guy's got a great career. The other guy's got a conveniently located apartment. (laughs) Together, they're unstoppable. (laughs) 
Um, all right. So what else do you do when you're in town? So what's your day like when you're like, you know, when you're doing you know, comedy in um, Sydney? Uh, what, what, what do you do? What, what, like, how do you fill your day? Well, I'm um, perfectly located being in Newtown because like when I travel anywhere, my hobby that I like to do, I like, I, I like to go to used bookstores mm-hmm. and I like to go to used record stores. Okay. And so Newtown's got great Both. used bookstores. Yep. I like ethnic food. I've been doing that um, up and down Kings Road. Is there a particular is... ethnicity that you would gravitate towards? Thai is my favorite. Okay, and nice, then yep. Indian. I like spicy. Um, but so yesterday morning, I woke up early to go see the McGregor um, Mayweather fight. Okay, <clears> yep. So, so that was exciting. The uh, guys who worked at the Comedy Store said they were going to go to the Vic, Vic on the park. So I stroll over this classic Aussie, you know, pub, and uh, the place was packed with people, and I couldn't find my friends, so I had passed this other place called the Golden Barley Hotel, Uh and I went in there, and I watched it by myself. It was really exciting to be in, like, a room full of Australians and see, it was like half the the people wanted uh, McGregor, and then half the people were uh, for Mayweather, and you know it was it was really exciting. And were you are you a person who is excited by fighting? Are you like an MMA or a, like a boxing fan in general, or just more about the spectacle of this particular event? Um, I, you know, it's funny because I'm against violence, but um, I I love boxing. Yeah, what's well, agreed and, upon <clears throat> violence? Like, I mean, I, do, I think I've there's always a loved boxing. I I, tr- I tried to box when I was 13 oh, for a okay. year yeah. in junior gold gloves. Like the movie Rocky had come out uh-huh. and my br- <laughs> like a lot of white guys in America got suckered on the movie Rocky. Uh-huh. Me and my brother both like watched Rocky and looked at each other and thought, hey, we could be the next heavyweight champions of the world. Mothers must have <clears throat> hated that movie. So, um, you know, and then I had one fight and um, came in second. Okay. So um, retired one fight, you know, and I remember those, those, those Ali fights Uh and in the eighties were incredible Sugar Ray Leonard and, and Duran. And, uh, there were so many brilliant fighters. It's the, the, the boxing game has kind of waned in the last, um, few years, but I was a real snob when UFC came out. I thought it was too animalistic and too violent. Uh And, uh, the thing when like a guy's down on the ground, another guy's got his his he's on his knees and his dick's in his face, and he's he's punching him. Ha ha! I have my dick in your face, and I'm punching you in the face. It just first time I saw UFC, I thought, are these the deleted scenes from Shawshank Redemption? <laughs> it was just too violent, weird, homo homoerotic um, <clears throat> for me. So I was a real snob, and then I'm friends with Joe Rogan. <laughs> And I play at the MGM in Vegas where they do the UFC uh-huh. championships. So he set me up on tickets three times. And it's like ancient Rome gladiatorial. Right. Before the TV uh, uh, signal goes out to the world, they, the arena goes black. The Who's Baba O'Reilly comes on. And to that song, they play this montage on all the screens of like the greatest UFC knockouts. And and then the, the song gains momentum and, uh, you know, like three quarters into the song, it starts going bam, bam, bam on the drums. So they cut this montage yeah. of knockouts to these, these fucking drum licks. And then by this, by the time the song ends and the lights come on and they go to the live feed, you want blood. Right. It's absolute bloodthirsty ancient Rome gladiatorial shit. And it's exciting. There's an adrenaline to it. So I really, I enjoy it. But the thing that I dislike about it, which you can see from the McGregor uh, Mayweather fight, what happened, like he was complaining that they didn't let him go to the end where he was knocked out. Why didn't he let him knock me out on the ground? Because it's not an animal sport. When a man is, is being seriously injured, they stop it. Right. In UFC, and I've seen it tons, a fighter is down, he's been knocked out, and they let the other fighter get on top of him and do like this barrage, uh, this finishing fury, which is pure brain damage right. for later in life. Right. 
And I've seen it in the women fighters. Probably not. I've that seen much it later loads of fights. Somebody's down. Yeah. They got blood coming out of their nose and their mouth, and they'll let the other fighter get like five solid cheap shots in on them. You know, before oh. they go. Okay, that's it. I mean, here's the thing that I would say is if I were looking outside the world. If I were looking outside America, you know, as like an alien coming to life and you look at where the world is now with the madman in charge, you know, America, you know, like the craziness of it. One of the examples you would use about the descent of the civilization would be the fact that like the biggest thing in the world is all these people like you essentially, you know, doing Thunderdome, doing blood sports. Do you know what I mean? The, The biggest, most popular sport in the world is like a blood sport. Now, here's the thing. I don't like boxing and I don't like MMA and... But I like, I get it. I'm a sporting you fan. You like a spectacle. Yeah, I like a spectacle. Yeah. And I was intrigued. And like, you know, I get the theater of it. I, and I get the fact that they also, these people, like, you know, despite our concerns and whatever, they've all chosen to do it. And look, you might not know. I mean, fuck, maybe you, you should have known if you played football that you'd get concussion. But, you know, maybe they told you if you wear this helmet and whatever, you're going to be fine, Right. Well, we didn't know that you smoking was bad until like the 80s. Right. But you knew in your fucking heart that it was bad. And right. You were taking Literally a in your heart, you but, knew it was yeah, bad. Before and your in your lungs. Yeah. fucking had to tell you explicitly. Yeah. yeah. You knew. Yeah. You knew. And it's just, I, I don't think there's anyone walking into MMA who does not know that that is got to be detrimental for you. So I guess you know yeah. what you're signing up for. So there is a part of me that's like, well, if two people want to consent to do it yeah. and a bunch of people want to watch it, then... No, like, and it is, you know. it is it is entertaining. And like I said, I've, I've seen it live and, and, and loved it. It's I, But I was a real snob about it when it started because I was such a boxing enthusiast. So um, I, I've been converted. You're right. It is the, the, the end of civilization um, high water mark. But the thing that you need to remember, I've met a bunch of these fighters after um, the, the big MGM thing. Um, some of them are like 5'5". Five, five. Some of uh-huh. them, a lot of them, they're really tiny. Like Mayweather was 149 pounds. McGregor was 153 pounds. Right. That's not a very large no. man. So you need to always remember that when you're somewhere out in public and some little punk is, you know, you're thinking right. about getting lippy with somebody. That uh, one of these guys could uh, karate spin and, you know, kick your jaw out of place. Well, I mean, particularly when you look at someone like McGregor, who like, what, (laughs) three years ago was like a, whatever he's like, you know, but his mythology of McGregor from like the little I know about this was he came from nothing in a very short period of time, essentially, didn't he? Like he was a guy who like before UFC didn't have a lot going on in his life. But so he's exactly the sort of guy who could have been at the local pub. And you could have had a problem with. I imagine he's always had that I've big never mouth. seen anybody. I've been, I go to Ireland once a year right. for 20 years. I've never seen anyone walk around like Conor <laughs> like, McGregor like that? with the arms swingy and the fucking, you know, the, 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 the ass out and chest in, which is really almost like balance wise, almost impossible to do unless you're swinging your arms like that. <laughs> That's the only way to stay up, to, to walk in that posture. Yeah, this all has to work it's such an arrogant, in perfect harmony, am, or it doesn't I am, work. I am, I am just a street urchin thug walk. I mean, yeah. Uh, the whole I, thing. Ireland people are very funny and humble and, um, you know. Yeah, it's true. It's not, it's the, I've never, the braggadocio is not really traditionally yeah, Irish, yeah. is it? You don't mean like a, a boastful asshole like that, ever. <laughs> So he is, he's a unique person. I would like to see a bit of that coming. Maybe there is in this world because I don't follow it close enough to know. But I would love if the next, because this one seemed about, boxing has to be about, you know, you got uh, Floyd Mayweather, Money Mayweather, you know, the guy who owns, you know, a strip club and spent every night at his strip club yeah. coming up what to a classy, it. And, what a classy guy. You know, blah, blah, blah. Did he build a children's hospital? No. No. Build a strip club. <laughs> a fucking strip club. That costs $100 to get in. Wow. $100 on the door just to get in. Anyway, it was there every night. Um, and, then Conor, <laughs> <laughs> and then Conor McGregor, um, you know, this guy who, again, like, you know, has built this reputation on how brash and, like, you know, c- confident that he is. Is Could you be, could you be like a 
diminutive, shy, humble type and just be really good at fighting and get to the top? I guess that's what I'm asking. Like, could, well, could the guess, next... Yeah, yeah. Again, could can the ne- you bring in a ticket gate like that right. without... If, 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 I, I think Do you're right. Do you need to have a big personality or would it just be enough to be... Like, yeah, no, right. Two shy, polite right. fighters is not going to sell tickets. You're not ab- that you're, many tickets. You're absolutely right. Right. Well, you can have like a bunch of, you know, Boy Scouts and uh, their grandmothers ringside. Right. No. No, no, no. They know their target Pimps, market. prostitutes, yeah. <laughs> corporate CEOs. Who can own those? Who can afford those fucking seats? You know, that's like, they're like 10 grand or yeah. something. Are you probably more? You rap moguls and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Oh, I want the I want the well mannered <laughs> fighter who's trained by his grandmother. I mean, essentially, you are asking somebody to make a poor life choice because no one who is making sensible life choices is dropping a hundred thousand dollars to sit in the front row of like a fight. Doesn't matter who's fighting. Yeah. Doesn't matter if God <clears throat> comes down and fights Muhammad in a fight. Like a hundred thousand dollars from pretty much any normal person, it's not a rational decision, right? So they know their target market. They want people who don't make rational or good decisions. So they want a couple of role models who also exemplify not making rational or good decisions so those people can identify, right? Yeah. That's who you want. You want a guy that a pimp or a hustler or a, a guy who's going to spend $10,000 of his honeymoon fund to go to Vegas is going to identify with. I love it. It shows true. Um, <clears throat> I want right, to talk about... Well, go on. What were you going to say? The fight of the century. Okay. Yes. December 26th. The day after Christmas, uh-huh. 1908. 1908. Happened in Sydney, Australia, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Rush Cutters Bay. Jack Johnson became the first black heavyweight champion of the world. Most Australians don't even know this. I mean, I didn't know that. And that's, so just, and that's not even no that far from here. No white fighter would give a black fighter the title, uh-huh. uh, a shot at the title. This is the color line. And Jack Johnson was coming up. Jack Johnson was from Galveston, Texas. Both of, both of his parents were um, slaves, former slaves. He okay. was born right after the end of the Civil War. So um, Jim Jeffries was the champ, and then he retired. He was this beloved fighter, like total badass. And some guy got the, the title, and then this guy from Canada, from Quebec, named Tommy Burns, was the champ. And to think about, you know, how limited rights or travel uh, black people could do, mm-hmm. J- Jack Johnson travel followed this guy around the world and would sit ringside and taunt him. Well, you should give me the ti- title. Give me a shot at the title. And um, Tommy Burns called him a million racial slurs. He went to he followed him to Paris, uh, all over the world, wherever he was fighting and sat ringside. I think Sydney, he sat ringside also. And he was this well-dressed black man, and he gets this title shot. The uh, Tommy Burns chose some ridiculous amount of money. Uh, you know, I would only fight him if I was offered this. This Australian promoter, Hugh McIntosh, put up the money for them to fight, and then no America arena would allow a black fighter uh-huh. to go for this. It was such staunch, embedded racism. And this this Canadian guy, Tommy Burns, does it. The fight is on YouTube. There's a there's a, a brilliant documentary called Unforgivable Blackness that you should watch. It's about Jack Johnson. Right. And so he won the title in in 1908 in Sydney the day after Christmas. Everybody wanted the white boxer, and Jack Johnson just punishes this guy, and he keeps trying to fall down and Jack Johnson's holding him up going, no, this is going to be a long day for you because he had called him the N-word so many times and, and all this, this shit. And he, I mean, plus he traveled around the world waiting for this moment. Like a cat and a uh, playing with a, with a mouse. Wow. And it, it, it was probably the greatest fight of the century and it happened in Sydney, Australia. Well, somebody, surely, why have... Oh, why oh, 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 I'm sorry. I forgot the most important detail. So the big money back then, okay. like now, uh. was the film of the fight. Tommy Burns is getting his ass beat so bad, the Sydney police want to step in and stop it, the fight. They, they're, in the 13th round, they're threatening to stop it. So in the 14th round, Jack Johnson is putting him away, and the Sydney police not only—the uh, the, 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 the Sydney police shut off the cameras— 
because they didn't want it recorded, a black man beating a white man. They shut off. And you see right as the guy's falling, the cameras get shut off. And apparently the Sydney police went on to the ring, supposedly, and ended the fight. I mean, that's an amazing story. Like it's a, it So you're having this argument about fucking statues now? Right. There should be a statue to Jack Johnson at Rush Cutters Bay. I mean, absolutely. Where the old Sydney Stadium used to be. Yeah, I mean, this is... That's I a, just wanted to present that to It's your, amazing to, your to me. I did not believe this podcast would, would end with a call for a new statue, but I think it has. That was amazing. <laughs> that was really great. Hey, uh, we should wind up because we're going to go back to back. We're going to record your podcast as well. So, um, you know, that means that we should finish this one. And plus, I want to put this up. I'm going to put this up pretty much immediately so that people can uh, make sure if they are in Sydney, Australia, Great. that they come out and see your show at the Sydney Comedy Store. September 2nd at 7.15, the show. 7.15. Kind early. So, uh, but that's good. Seven o'clock. Uh, that's, I mean, Saturday night, easy place to park. Um, you know, go in there. You can hang out with me after this show. Exactly. Look at that. <laughs> you know, see, there you go. We not only saw a show, we made a friend. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's nice to make a friend. I feel like you made a friend with the cab driver on the <laughs> way did. over. He did. The guy totally the loved me. He was yeah. from Istanbul. Yeah. I had like the deepest conversation with that guy. I could on tell the ride over. when you got out of the cab. It was like, he was like, he actually gave you a, re- like, it was like a real life Uber. You know how you have to rate the driver yeah. at the end? He rated you and he gave you five stars, but just to me, because he was a cab driver. He was just yeah. like, you've got a good one here. So oh, I had a great Great talk with them. Look, I say even cab drivers love him, guys. You should go out and see him do some stand-up <laughs> comedy. If you are anywhere else in the world, of course, you can download his album. Uh, so, hey, thanks for being part of the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, do I have to plug anything from my end? Oh, what about the internet and stuff? Can people find you? Is there a best Tomroads.net. Um, the new album is All Hail Laughter. And Oh, uh, the podcast. What's the podcast my called? My podcast is Tom Rhodes Radio Smart yes. Camp. So uh, people can find that in all the usual places. Everything. That they like find. Go to tomroads.net and you'll no, it's all find there. it all. See, look at you. Yeah. A website that actually helps people. Not all of our guests have that, including probably I like myself. your illustrations you have on yours. Those are great. Uh, well, the, so James Fosdyke, who's this uh, brilliant Australian artist, he's from Adelaide. He does all my uh, art for all my shows now. Basically because um, I, I reached a peak with my looks. And since then, photos <laughs> photos have done me no favours. So basically, it's just drawings from now on. So you have to imagine how much I've artificially inflated my good looks in the drawings to what you'll actually see there on the night. But uh, uh, we are doing two shows live at the Sydney Opera House, September 15 and September 16. Uh, Charlie, myself, and a whole bunch of uh, guests will be on those shows. Um, first show, I think, is pretty much sold out. There might be a couple of random tickets. Second show, still some tickets available, but come along to those. They're going to be absolutely huge we will be at the la podcast festival with a huge lineup as well and you can check out all our podcasts at tofop.com all right nice one we'll see you later thank you tom thank you will